Eyes cool. 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 Welcome back to the Eyes Cool podcast. So called because Eyes Cool sounds like Eyes Cool. I'm your host, Jonathan Senshin. The iSchool podcast is brought to you by students and faculty of the Information School of the Center for the History of Print and Digital Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. As always, the opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the iSchool or of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We're available in all the podcast places, so subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, leave us a review, tell your friends. This week... We hear from students in UW-Madison's Master in Library and Information Studies program as they explore important topics in the field of information studies. This episode has three segments. The first focuses on Mar Hicks's recent book, Programmed Inequality, How Britain Discarded Women Technologists and Lost Its Edge in Computing, a book about gender and labor history and misogyny in the information professions and computing industry. A former professor in UW-Madison's History of Science program, Marr was just announced as the winner of the American Historical Association's Herbert Baxter Adams Prize in European History in recognition for her book, which is a very big deal. From there, we have a brief interview introducing us to the iSchool's brand new associate director, Nicole Wiesinger. And finally, we close with a short discussion of current events in the domain of information and society. This week, our team takes a look at how archival and special collections materials can make people and events in the past present to us today. They describe efforts libraries are making to connect collections to veterans and others ahead of Veterans Day. First up, you'll hear from Mar Hicks talking about the genesis of her book, Programmed Inequality, and that will take us into our student segment on the book. computer operator and programmer faced a very hectic year. Not only did she have to program and operate and test the computers in a key government computer center, but she also had to train two new hires uh, to take up programmer positions in her division. Now the year went by, she got the work done, and her new programmer trainees quickly stepped up into management roles. For her efforts, she was demoted into an assistantship below them. Now you might have already guessed at this point that although the trainer in the story was a woman, her trainees were men. And this trainer's story isn't unique. It's emblematic of a larger change, a push at this point in time to get young men with no technical skills into programming work in order to redefine a once feminized field and change the perceived value of the work. So that was Professor Mar Hicks uh, reading from her introduction of the book Programmed Inequality, um, which is going to be the topic of our discussion today. Uh, my name is Caitlin Taft. I am a first year uh, master's student at the iSchool here at UW. 
I'm Brianna Weiss, also a first-year high school student. And I'm Jasmine Sunderledge, also a first-year high school student. So today we are going to talk about um, Professor Hicks' book. We wanted to begin by sort of talking through the history, because this book is a history of uh, British computing from the uh, 1940s um, into the 1970s and 80s, um, discussing the ways that uh, the workforce was um, largely women and then sort of pushed aside for men and how that really caused a lot of problems for um, the British and how that really caused them to lose their edge in computing. Um, so we'll start out by kind of walking through the history of um, what this looked like and then we'll talk about some of the themes and thoughts for us that it brought up. Yeah, so as we go chapter by chapter, it's written chronologically, but there's a lot of reoccurring themes that come up. Okay, um, so the diminution of women's contributions in computing and the inability of British government to fulfill the promise that the technological revolution would maintain Britain's world power status and equalize Britain's highly class stratified society at the same time. Um, and as the book goes on, you start to see how this gendered all these gender labor practices and segregation of labor directly caused negative outcomes for Britain. So chapter one is titled War Machines, Women's Computing Work and the Underpinnings of the Data-Driven State. And it takes place from 1930 to 1946. So um, before the importance of early electric computing was realized, this work was highly feminized, which meant that it was devalued, underpaid, and characterized as rote and de-skilled work, which was apparently better suited for women. Um, so men, I guess just as people didn't understand really what um, the ultimate importance of computers would be, men especially saw the work as, um, quote, boring dead-end drudgery, um, and ultimately left this work for women. Um, and despite the uh, ridiculous amount of devaluing, this work was incredibly important. Um, so. This first chapter goes into um, the work done by uh, what was mostly female workers at Bletchley Park during um, World War II. And it ended up being utterly essential to code-breaking operations of World War II that ultimately changed the outcome for, um, in the Allies' favor. So like the intelligence that led to the D-Day landings was um, due to code-breaking efforts by women at Bletchley Park. And this was mostly lost to history. And um, so yeah, despite all of this devaluing of the women's work, it was invaluable in the war effort. And this chapter also goes into um, how the devaluing of women's work was possible because of the ridiculously hetero heteronormative assumptions um, of women at the time. So it was assumed that women would be eventually married and therefore would be financially reliant on a male breadwinner and that her job's wages um, therefore didn't need to fully support herself or a family. And this, you know, is riddled with assumptions. One, that a woman ever would be married, that she would have children. straight. <laughs> that she's straight, yeah. So it ignores um, queer women especially and it made it nearly impossible for them to live on their own. Um, it completely ignored single women who weren't married, who may have been asexual, aromantic, 
um, and it completely ignores single mothers or widows who would have to fully financially support a family. Um, and it also, because of these heteronormative assumptions that a man would be a breadwinner, it assumes that um, and suggests that women's jobs can and should be dead-end with no possibility of advancement. And that was a huge problem in um, the computing jobs for women is that there may have been slight advancement based on skill, but that advancement was um, supposed to stop by the time that women were getting married or having kids. Um, so chapter one really focused on the war effort and how women, you know, very likely won the war for the Allies due to their um, computing operations. Chapter two is titled Data Processing in Peacetime, Institutionalizing a Feminized Machine Underclass. And this takes place from 1946 to 1955. So um, something that allowed women to you know, have more jobs during wartime was the fact that lots of men were off at war. And as men were coming back and getting jobs, um, in some era areas, women were pushed out of the workforce. But at this point, you know, in the late 40s, early 50s, the importance of computing still wasn't realized. So that meant that um, women stayed in these roles. And just as it happened during the war, these jobs were um, completely devalued and um, were underpaid and, you know, had no room for advancement. Um, this even happened after the, uh, the marriage bar was uh, removed, so like women could keep working after they were married, but that had no effect on wages. It did not help women get um, more opportunities for advancement. They basically just came up with new ways to devalue women's work and um, keep them in this underpaid, um, you know, feminized underclass. Part of it was like increased automation helped them argue that, oh, women, you know, they aren't working as hard because the machines are doing all the work, despite the fact that um, you know, some of these jobs were incredibly complex and they would have to do with programming these machines, doing system analysis, you know, doing all the troubleshooting for when the machines ultimately wouldn't work. And, um, but despite that, they just found new ways to say, oh, the machines are doing the work so we don't have to fully pay women. And so again, they just stayed apparently low skill, even though women's apparent low skill machine working jobs had incredibly similar skill sets to the apparent high skill male commercial worker jobs. So obviously that wasn't a very <laughs> objective measurement. Yeah, um, funny how that works. But you know, these two chapters just really show that um, war and peacetime did not have very substantial changes on the ultimate outcomes for um, women who were you know, essential to um, the beginnings of the computing industry. So chapter three is titled uh, Luck and Labor Shortage, Gender Flux, Professionalization, and Growing Opportunities for Computer Workers. Um, and this takes place from 1955 to 1967. So um, during this period, um, it was starting to become very self-evident that computing was the future. Um, that was going to be the only way that the British government and British industry was going to be able to process the amount of data. 
um, that it would need to use. Um, the British had a very large social state, um, and so in order to be able to pay people's pensions um, and things like that, they needed to have these really high levels of data processing power, and computers were the way to go. Um, and uh, another way that um, kind of the industry tried to promote computing um, was to show that, you know, this is fully automated, it's time-saving, it's labor-replacing, um, it's going to completely revolutionize the way that you do your work. Um, but the equipment and the technology had not actually caught up to that promise yet at that point. Um, and so in reality, during this time, um, computing required really big workforces. Um, you needed to have 24-7 support by operators um, who were um, troubleshooting problems with the computers, making sure that they were running, swapping out vacuum tubes and tapes and things like that. Um, and a lot of this labor was performed by women. Um, there was something like 3.5 million women working in computing um, in the beginning of the 60s. Um, and so as women were kind of doing this work, um, it continued the patterns of um, that, you know, their work was severely undervalued, that they didn't need to be paid, um, that they didn't need to support families. And this was actually like a big selling point for early computing was like, it's so easy, even a girl can do it. And like, you can save money in your office by having women come in and do this work and you don't have to give them benefits. You don't have to train them or promote them. Um, they'll just come in and they'll sit down and they'll do this stuff. Um, and it'll just be a great like labor saving and money saving device for you. Um, and so really these, um, uh, it, women kind of almost became this like shorthand like um, notation for computing because they were kind of the ones that were seen um, as running them um, and that really not a whole lot of um, intervention was needed. It just they just kind of needed somebody to be there. Um, there were a lot of ads that kind of talked about this. Um, so one of the quotes from the book um, that I thought was interesting was uh, the primary purpose of these ads was to assure managers that they could get away with using generic office staff when buying a computer. The ads asserted that operators did not require special training or expertise. The Suzy computer um, is operated by a typist, not highly paid programmers and controllers, said the ad copy. Even though it states that the computer is programmed in a plain language from tape or by the typist, um, the operator remains just a typist, not a highly paid programmer, quote unquote. Um, the fact that Suzy came with a 130 page programming manual gives some indication of how inaccurate it was to refer to the operator as a typist. Um, several other com computers produced by the group of companies known as Business Mechanization Limited um, and later Business Computers Limited um, had women's names that alluded to the computer's functions. Um, in, in addition to Suzy, there was uh, Betsy, which was a betting and bookmaking computer, um, and Sadie, which was stood for the Sterling and Decimal Invoicing Electronically. Um, so women's labor was so closely allied with computers that machines were basically taking on the identities of women. And this was actually a pretty good time for women to be working in computing um, because they had these skills, um, you know, even though the kind of to the public um, facing world, they tried to make it seem like these computers were really easy to run. Um, they they weren't at all. And so um, women actually had some um, opportunities to get in, to have some advancements, um, to make as much money as men. Um, and they were, you know, for a time actually really well respected um, in the um in the industry, um, or at least more respected than they were previously and ended up being um, in the long run. Um, and so it was really a good time for women to be working in here. Um, and then, of course, because the, the status of computing began to rise and it became um, more of a, um, a high status um, industry, then um, 
we couldn't possibly have women working in that. And so slowly they started to get um, phased out. And so particularly as women, um, they often were hired as teenagers in early 20s. They'd work for a while um, and then they'd get married and have children. Um, and then that was kind of the social custom to leave the workforce. Um, and then they were being replaced with men. And the way that, that um, advertisements started talking about these jobs started to make it seem more powerful and complicated and technical. Um, and that language uh, really pushed um, the hiring towards um, young men because that was seen as the future of computing. Yeah, so then chapter four leads into the rise of the theocrat, how state attempts to centralize power through computing went astray, um, ranging from 1965 through 69. So with this, essentially, they were focusing on having um, with the treasury and such, trying to keep um, women down into like the lower tech areas and making them into um, more of like trainees, trainers and such. Um, so then they could train these perfect um, young, preferably white male um, theocrats into taking up these positions because they would rather um, keep the power with them rather than give women who have been working these jobs for so long um, allowing these women to have that sort of power and letting them rise through the ranks. Um, so typically women would be working as machine operators um, or like lower tech, um, so like um, punchers of um, various metals and such, um, which were seen as like lower status, um, but they were still set to train these men. Um, and then eventually after these men were trained, um, the women would be dropped down to apprentices um, to those men that they had just trained. Um, or removed from the workplace altogether. Um, the government and big companies um, kind of collaborated for this type of um, white computer men, quote unquote, um, to replace the undesired candidates. So these women um, and people of color from having these higher status points. Um, there is a lack of these men. Um, so in a constant search for you know the perfect man to take over these roles, um, and stay in the executive levels and rise to the ranks, um, they would constantly have to bring back women to fill these roles and um, cover these specific situations and um, lower tech jobs. Um, there was also a push to keep technology under the government um, umbrella in order to make um, easier upgrades and installments, but for the most part it was mostly to keep the power within the government itself and keep it centralized. Um, this way they could kind of lord over the rest of the um, tech companies and kind of have more of a competitive streak with um, opposing countries. Um, they would often push for um, launching the expensive models and in those ways um, it was an attempt to make a better um, profit off of them but in that way the market was really not quite looking for these expensive bigger models. Um, but they are still continuing with underpaid, um, mandatory overtime for these women, um, keeping them overworked and underpaid. Um, chapter five then goes into the end of white heat and the failure of British theocracy, um, spanning from 69 to 79. Um, even though they were seeing these kind of lack of turnout for these jobs by these perfect theocracy, theocrat, um, men, um, they were pushing for those positions, but not enough men would fit those specific, specific um, positions 
um, but they were in desperate need of a workforce. Um, so in that way, they would still call back the women um, into those roles, but keep them lower. Um, there was attempts by the Treasury and the Civil Service Department to keep computing in-house for maximum control, trying to keep it under the government and under their main umbrella, um, rather than give up control to other groups. Um, essentially, it was a constant um, overturn of, um, there was a quote, and it goes, yet turning attention from the great mass of workers who had the relevant experience for computer work was rarely seen as a cause for concern. Most employers tactically or even explicitly endorsed structural discrimination that kept women from taking higher level jobs and preserved them as a low cost labor force. Um, end quote. Essentially with that, it was a constant cycle of this, um, which eventually devolved into a lack of um, workers and then um, higher raises in worker and union strikes, um, which caused major delays and um, shutdowns of various plants um, especially in the female-centric roles, which included these um, limited-time punchers and um, machine operators that were deemed as like a lower quality and less important work than the jobs um, that these perfect theocrat jobs would have. Um, which even with, especially with the loss of these like lower-type jobs, there were pay freezes, there were um, delays in work that would um, ruin weeks' worth of possible work, um, plants and such would shut down. Um, so is a major devolvement into um, the loss of that British theocracy and no longer have that um, kind of power <laughs> over the whole system and losing out to other countries such as um, America in the computer world. The quick summary of specifically what happened in Britain, um, but I know all of us as we were reading this book could think of thousands of ways that this relates to all industries, uh, really, and uh, many, you know, places and stuff. Um, and, you know, it's definitely not a, um, it's not isolated to just British computing in this particular time. Um, a lot of these topics and themes that that are highlighted in here are pretty universal experiences for women um, and particularly women working in professional fields. Yeah, it's interesting that it, I think some of the biggest themes specifically relating to gender are how labor done by women was devalued and thought to be not as important and that just kept being reinforced so women didn't have to be paid as much. And something else that is addressed almost immediately is the fact that um, the, the underrepresentation of women in technology wasn't an accident or yeah. an oversight. Um, it, it came from men deliberately seizing the power of computers once it was realized and systematically pushing women out. Yeah. And, you know, we have five chapters of evidence for this. That yeah. It's literally in only one small part of the world. And I think this is really important to understand because I think a lot of people just see it as like um, what Mar Hicks says, you know, many claim boys just have natural interest in computing. And people believe that the lower number of women in computing is the result of, you know, individual choice that, oh, women yeah. just don't like doing it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it's five chapters of refuting evidence saying that, you know, this is a 
systemic problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and even like now, um, you know, so I work in technology, I work in IT, um, and thinking about job postings, and this is something that a lot of research has been done on, um, is the kind of language even that's um, put forward in like how we talk about these technology jobs. Um, And there's this kind of gender biased or gender coded language um, that's often used when we talk about technology of like being dominant versus being collaborative or being competitive versus being nurturing or being understanding uh, versus being decisive. And, um, you know, these, these kind of coded words that make women both feel sort of uncomfortable or excluded potentially um, and also continue to sort of solidify this idea that technology is a, you know, a man's world and you have to be like a total like, you know, ball buster, like balls to the wall kind of guy to in order to be able to, you know, work in this industry, which is totally not the truth at all. Yeah, it makes me wonder just because um, librarianship is such a feminized profession, if, because some people are surprised to hear like, how much technology is a part of this education. Yeah. And, you know, I bet subconsciously, it has a bit to do with the fact that librarianship is so feminized. And like, I think our program is like, 70% women. Oh, yeah. And, um, but the fact that tech is so masculinized, yeah. that it's hard to see them go together despite the fact that technology is everywhere in the library. Mm-hmm. So I think these things are definitely still plaguing us in, you know, how much we respect disciplines and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, I've had people who um, don't really understand, you know, what a library degree is about, and then I start explaining the tech, and they immediately respect it. Yeah. Which is very interesting rather than, you know, some of the more, like, say, feminized things when I talk about, you know, library maybe being a good place to um, serve a community and stuff yeah. like that. People seem to not respect it as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you just think of, like, the stereotypes of, like, librarians, like, yeah. from, like, oh, it's the, you know, the strict, like, prim, proper mm-hmm. spinster mm-hmm. librarian, but it's always very, like, feminized. Um, oh, you're just going to punch some books all day and, like, put them back on the shelf. Like, it, what exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. why do you need a degree to do that? Um, and, and then you start to, you know, if you start to explain how technical the job really is, um, then it, you know, sometimes is more respected. Um and that happens across all kinds of labor. I mean, there's so much of, you know, women's labor that is devalued, um, even though it's really complicated. I mean, just thinking about, like, so much care work, um, you know, like, CNAs and, like, people who, like, do, like, aides in nursing homes and, like, preschool teachers and all that kind of stuff. Like, these jobs that are so critical, they're taking care of, you know, your loved ones and, like, doing this really hard work and, like, they get paid nothing and it's super undervalued. Um and the workforce is largely women. And so you just, you see that in, you know, across labor, not just in technology, but it's particularly pervasive in technology. Um, uh, Yeah, and I think that kind of goes into, you know, the flip side of things, saying that a lot of people see, like seem to think of technology as just like, oh, I I don't tech or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just this book really opened my eyes to the fact that computing didn't change that much from the time women were dominating it to when women were pushed out, yet it was seen seen as so rudimentary at the beginning, and now it's seen as so complicated, and yeah. computer programming is, you know, just seen as ridiculously complicated. And, you know, not to say that it isn't, but I think the fact that it is male-dominated has something to say about what may be being overblown. I know sometimes I feel a little 
reluctant to try technological things. And then once you actually overcome that and start doing it, you realize that it is attainable. And Oh, totally. You know, I, I mean, when I started working in IT, my friend was like, hey, come work at the help desk. And I was like, I can't do that. And thankfully, I had people in my life that were like, we'll teach you, we'll train you. Mm-hmm. We can make, you know, you can learn this. It's totally, you know, you, you are perfectly capable of doing this. Um, but it's not something that I really like came to on my own just because it seemed like such a hard, complicated, obscured like field mm-hmm. that was like, well, I could never do that. And then turns out like, yeah, you can. It's really not that hard. You can learn. It's it's all just it's like any skill. You just you learn how to do it. Mm-hmm. That's that's just a how matter it. of practice. Exactly. Yeah, I think you know this. All these ideas that we're talking about makes me realize that you know maybe the way to break down these barriers in tech to diversify it is to actually just be upfront about what it entails not saying like oh computer programming is hard yeah actually talk about what it entails what you have to do when you're being a computer programmer or like working in it like what are the actual skills what are you actually doing and i think that you know could be a good first step in kind of stopping the whole gatekeeping narrative of yeah um, computer science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think about, so another thing that jumped out to me a lot, um, in, as I was reading and I know is still a thing today because of my personal experiences and experiences of people that I know is, you know, along with kind of the gatekeeping, then once you do get in the door, there's often a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of sexism and, um, that makes it like one intimidating for people that want to start in the field. Um, you know, if you know, like, oh, hey, I'm going to get harassed. Like, nobody really wants to, like, jump into that kind of job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it hard to stay in the field, and it makes it hard to progress. And, like, I was just, like, in the in the book, in chapter one, I think it was, um, you know, she's talking about these, you know, these women are, um, they're at, um, uh, you know, they're working on the war effort. They're at Bletchley Park. You know, they're doing this, like, incredibly important work. They're, you know, helping the allies win the war. And there's a quote about uh, when cooling off with coworkers outside the boiling hot Colossus room one night, uh, Dorothy Dubois-Song received a recall to male coworkers suggested she and her fellow operators should go topless. But she added dryly, we did not take up the offer. And just thinking about like, you are doing this insanely important work that's like literally like saving the world. And yet you still have to deal with the bullshit of like men. Devaluing you, you for your simply as an yeah, object as, and as a as your body rather than a person absolutely yeah mm-hmm. and that's just you know and i know that continues today and that makes it really you know that that's another kind of form of gatekeeping almost really is that you don't want to submit yourself to that kind of treatment necessarily um and so it may just be like you know before even before people get even before women or or you know and it's it's the same thing for you know people of color and people with you know different sexualities and gender expressions and things like that like if you're anything outside this kind of like white male cis norm um there's sort of this impression um rightfully so that you may experience harassment and difficulties and most people don't really want to submit to that in their life so yeah So reading through this book, it is very dense and very specific, I would say. And I struggled a little bit at the beginning to kind of think of like bigger ideas and like, what does this mean for us as like future information professionals? And I was really struck at, um, in the introduction when, um, 
Mar Hicks talks about, um, it's on page 11 under computing and the state, and it talks about how, um, so countries like Britain were fundamentally using this technology to consolidate power into the hands of a small technocratic elite. And basically they were using this, you know, newly found power, which was computing to reinforce the hierarchies that have always existed and to enrich the people who have always been rich. But that isn't all of the history. It, it is most of the history, but it is not all. She talks about um, how, so um, I'll read a quote here. In the case of Chile, a socialist government tried to use computing for, radical social, for a radical ju social justice project that would give greater economic and political power to the working class. Um, so this just really stood out to me and it reminded me that in the end, technology and computers and algorithms are a tool that isn't inherently anything. It, technology is used by people to carry out a specific means. Mm -hmm. And of course it's been used maliciously just like any other tool mm -hmm. in history. Um, and, but that gave me, it definitely left me with some hope that technology isn't just fundamentally evil and fundamentally meant to enrich the rich and empower the powerful. It can and has been used for um, equalizing and social justice yeah. and to bring power to the disempowered. There's also a quote at the um, very beginning that I really liked. Um, so it's like right before the contents and part of it says, technological innovation does not exist in a vacuum. It forms but one element of a complex social system. So again, that just reminds me that technology is a tool that can be wielded in any sort of way. And I think that's important for us as future information professionals to remember that we can and should be using technology for you know, things like for social good. justice and equality. Yeah. yeah, and really just making sure that people have access to technology is an issue of social justice mm -hmm. because it's important and it's not going away and making sure that, you know, all people have um, access to not just technology, but also potential careers in technology mm -hmm. um, is really an, an issue of, of social justice because though that's going to be the place where work is in the future um, with, you know, AI and automation and continuing, you know, that continuing to be a bigger and bigger part of our life. Um, the, the workforce is going to look very, very technical um, in the future, I think. And if we're just excluding like 50% or more of people, like we're not going to get the creativity, we're not going to get the skills, we're not going to get the knowledge um, that is needed to improve these things and make sure that it functions for everybody so that it can be a tool of social progress um, and equality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like it can seem very daunting because we do have, you know, like in the case of the U.S., we have these new like monopolies and almost oligarchs that have formed, like people like Mark Zuckerberg yep. and um, Jeff Bezos in the case of Amazon that really have weaponized technology in a way to enrich themselves and create, you know, a new underclass. And it can be really hard because... Um, I have a kind of a metaphor I want to use, and it's like the idea that, say, say we talk about technology like it's a dog, 
a dog can be trained to do, you know, really good things. Like they can be a medical alert dog. They can be a seeing eye dog. They can, you know, do really incredible and productive things. Whereas they can also be trained to be attack dogs and to, you know, protect, Mm -hmm. say, you know, a bad person and empower them. And it can be really hard because our technological landscape seems to be very much on the side of, you know, empowering and enriching the few. And so, you know, we have this dog that's just trained to fight and attack. (laughs) And, you know, I don't think we should, you know, just resign and, you know, let the dog or, you know, technology do this thing. And I also don't think we should, like, put down the dog, you know, just like say, you know, (laughs) screw technology, there's no hope. But I think on top of using technology to create new ways to empower people and reinforce social justice, we also have to, like, you know, untrain the dog from fighting. So we need to do things like breaking up big tech. So, you know, the, you know, super rich stop being enriched and empowered. And, um, you know, it's not great that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's choices on, say, running or fact-checking political ads have implications for the whole country um, and the whole world. It should be, you know broken up and decentralized and all this kind of stuff but um so you know it is a daunting task but I don't think it's impossible yeah no no and I think when we were talking about the book beforehand um uh you know you Brenna said something about you know one of the big things with like information professionals is that like libraries are a place where people encounter tech a lot of times and people who don't have money um or you know don't have good technology stuff they can always go to the library and use a computer and so it's important for librarians and other information professionals to be able to support those people um because that's a you know that's a gateway to getting um you know underrepresented people that may not have the um, economic um, or whatever means to have their own technology to be able to use it. And like, that's huge. Like I hadn't even thought about that until you brought it up. And mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, no, that's that's like a huge way that librarians can make sure that there's, you know, push towards equity um, by providing these access spaces and by being able to help people, you know, use these technologies um, mm-hmm. appropriately and just, you know, widen the pool of, of users. Yeah, I mean, just technology is so, has so much power and has so many implications for our world and we really need to stop you know gatekeeping and pushing people out and mm-hmm. um because you know one it hurts the people who are pushed out but you know as programmed inequality taught us if you put in just a small group of people say cis white men who are you know untrained in this it's going to have implications for the whole society like it's not going to be as good as it could be like we wouldn't say you know, pick a small group, like, you know, people whose last names are in the first half of the alphabet can be programmers and the others can't. Like, it makes sense when we put it like that, that you wouldn't just pick a random half of the population and say, you can be programmers, because that's excluding, you know, people who could be the best of the best. There's also, um, we should also kind of look to the pay gap, where um, Mm -hmm. even though, you know, women tend to do the same amount of work, if not more, than men, um, even in like specific technology jobs or any other job. Um, we also just really haven't focused on the fact that there is that large pay gap um, and that women do deserve to have um, an equal pay with their male counterparts. And that's not even touching on um, the various like 
pay gap seen within um, other races, it's also mm -hmm. something that we need to focus on along with like this technology boom. Yeah, definitely. That's, you know, if even if you get in the door and you're there and you're not making the same amount of money, like it's still not equitable. Mm -hmm. And it has, you know, these, it has more implications. And, you know, we know now that we do not live in a heteronormative patriarchal society <laughs> where women are taken care of their by their parents until they get married and then they're taken care of by their husband. Um, you know, first of all, that's just not even, you know, even if you are a, you know, the heterosexual person, married woman married to a man, you're probably both working because that's just the way the economics work now. Mm -hmm. um, it's necessary to have two incomes. And so why should half of the yeah. population and, not make as yeah. much money for doing the same labor? Yeah, like we as a society really need to be like checking our biases and saying like, you know, oh, am I, do I feel like this job doesn't deserve as much money because of the gendered implications of it? Yeah. And try and, you know, really bring that to the forefront of your mind and say, you know, say it was a man in this job, would I think this was enough pay? And yeah. to really be thinking about those things because even if you don't want to be sexist, there are still, like, we've all grown up and have, you know, been, we, I mean, we've all grown up in this sexist society that, yeah. you know, kind of burns, you know, this junk into our brain to think of, you know, certain jobs as less skilled and yep. all this. And we really need to take a step back and look at, what are people doing and what do they deserve yeah. for mm -hmm. their work? Yeah. yeah, if we don't keep up with the economy, um, we're just going to fall flat on our faces like the British did with their technology. Yes. Um, because if we <laughs> can't keep up with the economy and like how things are changing and we are no longer a nuclear family who the women stay home and the men go to work and work, um, may, are the breadwinners, um, we have to keep up with the fact that there are women in this field and they do have the right to have that yeah. same earnings. So. Yeah, and we're all going to benefit when we have the yeah. best people in yeah. these jobs. I mean, you wouldn't want your doctors just to be all white men because that's not going to be the best of the best. Yeah. Will there be white men in the best of the best? Sure. Yes. But. Yeah. But there's also going to be non-binary people. There are yeah. also going to be people of color and women and trans people. And yeah. it's to everyone's benefit, which can be hard to see, especially if you are a part of the privileged group and you want that job, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, when you yeah. think about it, so I found out a few years back that one of my male coworkers who, we didn't have the exact same job, but we had a pretty significant overlap of our duties um, and then did some other things separately. Um, and I'd been working there for longer than him and I found out that he made more money than me. And I was really pissed off about that. Um, and kind of the explanation that was given was, well, his work is more technical, quote unquote. And I was mm -hmm. like, I, what, like, I'm doing just as technical things, like, just because I'm doing it at a help desk, so I'm doing it face-to-face -face with people doesn't mean that it's not technical work, and, like, mm -hmm. that was, like, really demoralizing. It's like, well, this sucks, like, I'm, I thought that my contributions were, you know, valued here, and it turns out that they're just, they are, but just not quite as much as this person who does this more technical, quote-unquote, Work. And who just happens to be a man. And who just happens to be a yeah. man. And it's totally different. Yeah, it's totally different. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, and so that was, um, you know. I wish those supervisors would have checked their biases. I know, right? And I was like, I, yeah. Or read this book. Yeah, exactly. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. And next... We learn more about our department, the UW-Madison Information School. 
This year, we have a new associate director, Nicole Wiesinger. Learn a little bit more about her in this brief profile. Welcome to this week's iSchool segment of the iSchool podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Nicole Wiesinger, the associate director of the iSchool. She just joined the faculty here at the UW this year, and we're very excited to find out more about her background and her hopes for the future of the iSchool. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. Would you tell us a bit about your background? What brought you to the iSchool? Sure. My background is in public education, both in PK through 12 and higher education. I've taught middle school science, served as the aerospace education manager for the state, and have been at the UW for six years in various capacities, including outreach, undergraduate advising, academic information management for LNS administration, and also academic planning and institutional research for the office of the provost. And of course, now the iSchool. Um, I've also served on the school board and city council, which was really a great experience for understanding school and public libraries from a district and municipality uh, perspective. So I'm really excited to be at the iSchool. The position itself is a perfect blend of teaching, advising, and higher ed administration. I was attracted to the iSchool for many reasons. It's filled with great people, engaged students, faculty, and staff, and I so look forward to working with everyone. It's an exciting time to be a part of the information field as it rapidly changes and its significant role in society is increasingly at the forefront. My particular interest areas include public library partnerships, evaluation and assessment, community engagement, and equitable access to information. Cool. Cool. Uh, And what is your vision for the iSchool? Is there an area in which you would like to inspire growth? I'm really looking forward to supporting the iSchool and serving a broad range of stakeholders through its many efforts, whether it be the MA program, the capstone certificates, continuing education, conducting research, or providing useful services to information professionals and all information users. It's an interesting time to be a part of the iSchool as new opportunities present themselves with partnerships and sympatico efforts in the division of computing, data, and information sciences. Um, It's an exciting to be reaching our branches out further in ways that both support and strengthen our existing array of programs and areas of inquiry, while also adding to that array in those areas. It's exciting to think about the possibility of adding an MS in information and serving a broader range of students and workforce needs through more course and program offerings. It's also exciting to think about adding additional faculty members to the iSchool family in the near future and the ways that that will enrich learning and research opportunities. And I'm really honored to be able to support the people and the programs of the iSchool as we continue to grow and evolve while maintaining our core values and mission. So we've been talking a lot both here at the iSchool and as a university community as a whole about institutional commitments to diversity. And we wondered what you think the iSchool can do to realize its stated commitment to diversity and inclusion. Yeah. There's a lot of discussion in classrooms and as a university community about institutional commitments to diversity, and that's a good thing. Those conversations are critical as we move forward, and it's important that the iSchool ensures a safe and inclusive space for that dialogue to occur. Dialogue can often catalyze action, and I look forward to working together to take actions to ensure we're realizing our commitment to diversity and inclusion. The Diversity and Inclusion Committee is doing great work. There is discussion afoot about the way diversity, equity, and inclusion thread through our curriculum and the potential of a cultural competence requirement. We're tapping into more training and resources for faculty, staff, and students, but the work is not done. The discussions are not done. We have more to do, and we need to do it together. And I think that the iSchool can be an exemplar on campus and more broadly within our field for creating an inclusive environment where all members of our community are respected and valued and have a voice and an opportunity to participate. Uh, What advice would you give to a student um, starting out um, in this semester or a coming semester soon? 
First, I would say welcome to the iSchool community. We're happy to have you here. You belong here. Um, as for words of advice, perhaps the most sage piece of advice is to be open. Uh, you may have new opportunities, courses to take, groups to be involved with, research experiences that push you into new areas, new ways of thinking. So be open to exploring new things. It's important to have a roadmap of what your time here will look like and to plan ahead, but also be prepared to take detours when desired or necessary. Um, and to really think about what are my goals, what do I want to get out of this program, this experience, and then to tap into the resources necessary to actualize those goals and identify the tools and supports you need to be successful. So meet with your advisor, talk with your instructors, engage with your peers, and meet if you have a question to ask. I like that last one a lot. <laughs> yeah, we can all work on that. Yeah. Uh, so the last one, I have I have three questions. Sure. Um, not just one, but three. Um, what's your favorite book that you've read in the last year? So right now I would have to say Small Great Things by Jodi Pickle. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That was a good one. Uh, favorite movie, not in the last year, but in, uh, in all time. So my favorite book of all time I read when I was in sixth grade for the first time, and I've read it dozens of times since, which is Little Women. So my favorite movie of all time is the 94 adaptation with like Winona Ryder and Christian Bale. So so good. Yeah. It is so good. And they're coming out with another yes. one, so we'll see if it compares, but I'm skeptical. So right. yeah. <laughs> I'm always skeptical. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the last one is, uh, what, in your opinion, is the best pizza in Madison? So it's not in Madison, but it's in Stoughton, which neighbors Madison. <laughs> and I have yet to find a better piece of pizza than a famous Yeti's in Stoughton. Mm -hmm. Have to try that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank today. you. Yeah. Next up, current events. This Veterans Day, how are libraries using special collections and archival holdings to connect past and present? Hello, hi, and welcome to the current events segment of the Eyes Cool podcast. Today we'll be briefly discussing an article from Mississippi State University titled MSU Libraries, Veterans to Honor Soldiers with Historical Letter Presentation, written by Ann Owens. Let's start by introducing our panel for today, and then we can get to the article. I'm Anna, and I'm a first-year high school student, and I'm interested in public libraries. Hey, I'm Jason. I'm a first-year high school student as well, and I am thinking about what I'm interested in. I'm Esther. I am a first-year high school student as well, without a, without a concentration. I'm Emma. I'm also a first-year high school student, and I'm in the DIA concentration. So with the introductions done, I'd like to quickly summarize the article for our audience. This article describes an upcoming public event on November 11th, hosted by the Mississippi State University Libraries in honor of Veterans Day. The event is called Through the Lines, Letters from Home and the Front, 1917 to 1945, and it features selected readings of U.S. soldiers' letters pulled from the university archives by veterans and volunteers. Hopefully that provides enough background for us to get to our discussion on the article. Any thoughts? Um, well, I thought this was a really cool article. Just first of all, you know, Happy Veterans Day um, on Monday. So that was yesterday. Um, so it's a good way to just get the community involved in 
um, celebrating Veterans Day and also in libraries because they're materials that um, the article states, you know, people think they're just dusty old materials, but they're actually really cool and super interesting for engaging the public and researchers as well. Yeah, um, that was one of the things that stood out to me, how uh, just thinking about the role of libraries and archives uh, in getting people interested in history and I guess connecting people with the past and seeing, I, I mean, I guess people's perspectives, seeing how people lived back then. Uh, so in that way, I think that this is a really cool kind of initiative, a really cool outreach project. Yeah, absolutely. Like, there's not a whole lot of veterans left from that generation. So I think this is, like, the best way to get, like, first-hand accounts now of what they went through. And I think this speaks a lot to what we were talking about in class last week, um, about the materiality of um, objects versus digitization. And um, I think special collections and archives is still a great way um, to display our material items and also specifically this event and events like it are a great way for, to get the community involved um, in material items and like Jason said involved in libraries um, getting people to come in the door. That is um, the physicality of the documents it, it is really cool um, for my history capstone I wrote about my great-grandpa um, and his life, and part of that was a big chunk of um, World War I, World War II letters from um, his training, and it was just really cool, especially since it was my own great-grandpa, um, just to see his experiences, and it really puts you in a different state of mind reading that material firsthand. Um. Another thing that the article mentioned is that they're on the lookout for items from female veterans or veterans of color. Uh, that kind of gets back to some of the themes that was in uh, a book we talked about earlier in the semester, uh, Ruha Benjamin's Lace After Technology, uh, and that it kind of t uh, touches on how archives and libraries can contribute to obscuring like certain perspectives and certain uh, histories. So uh, the fact that they're on the lookout for that, that they're uh, encouraging people to come forward, from come forward with those if they have them, uh, I also think that's that's a pretty good step forward. Yeah. Um, the UW Madison Student Veterans of America is that group is also sponsoring something here on our campus for Veterans Day. It's called the Human Library, and. If you're interested, it's November 14th in College Library, room 1193 from 4 to 7 p.m. And if you're interested, like come listen to student veterans as they share their stories of military experience. Yeah, I, I think that could be really cool. Um, you don't really, I mean, just walking around campus, it, it's not like you can really tell exactly who's a veteran usually, so I think it'd be really cool to actually go to the event and. I mean, just see who's who, to see who's a veteran who's had that experience and to hear firsthand exactly what uh, serving in the military is like. I think that's a good point, too, just for, because you know, when, even when you do see someone in a military veteran or military um, uniform, you're not super comfortable now going, just going up to someone and saying, hey, thank you for serving. Um, so it's just a good way to keep the public 
the public's mindset on, you know, focusing on celebrating veterans. And if you do know that they served, go yeah. up to them and say hi. And it's also worth keeping in mind that, like, personally, like, most of the time when you see someone that you know is a veteran, like, they're, like, actually kind of, like, old, middle-aged at least, like, they're probably wearing one of those veterans' hats. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but you have to realize that not everybody is, is like, in that position. It's just people walking around, like, they're people like everybody else, so, yeah. Um. Um, so I think we're going to wrap things up. It looks like that's about all the time we have for this segment. So thank you for listening, and keep those eyes cool. Happy Veterans Day. And that is all for this episode of the Eyes Cool podcast. Because Eyes Cool sounds like ice school. Thanks for listening. We will be back next week to discuss UW-Madison iSchool alum Melissa Adler's book, Cruising the Library, Perversities in the Organization of Knowledge. <laughs>